good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, uh, everyone. My name is Laura Bradburn. This is the WFI podcast. Uh, first one for the 2018-19 season. And it's one that we're hoping is going to be a weekly instalment for you guys. So with me this week, I've got Stevie Grieve. How are you doing, Stevie? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm not too bad. Looking forward to the new football season getting started. It seems like... Uh, even though it's only been a wee while since the World Cup's finished, it's uh, it's been a wee while since we've seen any club football, so I'm looking forward to that. Aye, me as well. I think when you're, when you're watching the World Cup, you're kind of, at the end of it, you're like, right, how long to the club season? It's a nice short break, so it's a lot has been happening this summer, which has been nice. Yeah. So for everybody listening, what we're going to do today, just to sort of ease ourselves back into the new season, we're going to do a wee recap of the World Cup itself, um, just talk through some of the big talking points from the tournament, some of our favourite players and performances, and then anybody that we thought maybe underperformed, and then just move our focus over onto the transfer window and uh, what the big transfers have been so far this summer and how that might impact the season going forward. So we'll get started. Stevie, what did you think yourself about the the World Cup in general? How did you think the tournament went? Was it one of the better tournaments you've seen or, or were you disappointed with it? What was your thoughts? I, I thought it would take a lot to top the Brazilian World Cup, to be honest, but this one was, was good. It was open. Obviously, a lot of the, the big names went out early or they underperformed and then you had a Croatia obviously reached the final and at one point it looked like we could have a new new winner of the tournament obviously France came through in the end but for me it was it was a good tournament in terms of different players coming through different teams coming through um, getting away from the same old teams which you see in every every single tournament getting towards the end so from that from that point of view it was kind of refreshing to see different countries get into the final stages of the tournament. Yeah, I think that's. I think I definitely agree with that. I mean, you and me being from Scotland can't really have any other position on this. But like, uh, I quite often hear from people saying they don't like seeing the wee teams getting in and all that kind of thing. But I think if they come along to the tournament and they give a good game, I don't see any reason why why it should be any different to kind of the old stalwarts uh, being there or not being there. I, for for me anyway, you know, I, I went into this tournament thinking that Italy and Holland not being there would be a big miss and I don't think anybody sitting watching it w- would have said that this year. I think there was plenty going on from smaller teams that don't have as big a history, teams like Egypt and things like that, who put in decent performances and gave the bigger teams a game, I think. Yeah, I think there's always the argument of uh, there should be less teams in it because it dilutes the quality, but I, I think that the point of it is that it's the World Cup. If it was just about the best teams in it, you'd have six or seven teams from Europe, Brazil, Argentina, Mexico, and that would be about it. And you'd end up with almost the Confederations Cup, which nobody really cares about. So now when we when we look in the future, we're going to have four or eight teams in the World Cup. It opens up new markets, it opens up new players. You maybe have to watch different types of games. And I think... I think it's a better thing that there's going to be more teams in it because you get a wee bit more excited. Let's say Thailand qualify for the next World Cup and they get to the quarterfinals and somebody says, oh, they're rubbish. Holland should have been there. Well, Holland didn't qualify. So that's on them. You've got to get there. Once you get there, you enjoy the experience. It helps the country grow. It maybe develops more more of a national interest in, in football or in the countries where football is not a main sport, like in Canada, where we have the World Cup here in 2026 it will drive more people towards playing the game and making it more popular and 
I think us being Scottish, the only way I can look at it is how tactically inept we're Scotland in qualifying. It's our own fault that we're not there. It's not because the players aren't good enough. It's because of a multitude of reasons. And it shows how how much can be done if everything's focused in the right way and you have countries like Croatia getting so far and Belgium over the last 15 years have become a, a massive nation in football. So it's one of those things where it gives you hope for the future if things are done properly. Yeah, I think I totally agree with what you're saying. Like the, it's everybody goes on about it, but you know, population-wise, Iceland are without a doubt probably the smallest country that were at this World Cup and probably at the European Championships in 2016. And I think everybody would agree that they probably have contributed more to to those tournaments than a lot of teams with a lot bigger fan bases, a lot bigger populations and probably with a lot more right to think that they've got a, pl- a place in the tournament. So it's definitely something that that I think, uh, like I say, as long as the football's good, I'm not really caring who's playing it. Hi, I, I'm, I'm kind of... I wouldn't say I was a football snob because I, I have my own way of playing because obviously I'm a coach. But when you look at an Iceland, you go, right, are they maximising the resources? Are they getting the most out of the players that they've got? Could they play like Barcelona and be successful? Probably not. Could they play like Spain and be successful? Probably not, right. So if they play like that and don't qualify, then what's the point? How can the coach and how can the country find a way to maximise what they have to get to these tournaments? Whether you play the nicest, most attractive football, whether you play dual defensive football, whether you play um, really deep and play direct and play off transitions, that's up to the coach. That's up to how you're going to maximise what you've got. And I think Iceland are a country who, at under-21s, maybe 10 years ago, had a really, really good team. And now they've brought them all through, given them all opportunities, shipped as many players as they can off the island into mainland Europe, who are now doing really well. And I think, I don't think that this is going to be like a one-off period for them because they they, they failed to qualify in 2014 through the playoffs against Croatia, qualified for Euro 2016. This year they've managed to qualify for the World Cup. I, I can't see them just falling away now. And I think they've maybe got a solid infrastructure where people now go, right, football's what we're going to do. It's what we're going to aim for. And maybe the expectation level in the island becomes higher. So they've shown that if you can find a way of playing which suits everybody, whichever you can get behind, and you can create a really good environment, it's maybe easier to do it in a small island like Iceland is, is to do it in a big country. But if we go to what's the point of the World Cup, to showcase countries who have managed to qualify for the world's biggest tournament. And I think in the end, France won because they had the most rounded team and there was a lot of other teams who contributed to a good tournament. Absolutely. And uh, just to, to pick up on that theme of, you know, big changes to the game that are hopefully going to remain uh, going forward, what was your own thoughts on the introduction of VAR? Um, I have my own, but I'd like to hear yours first before I, before I put mine out there. <laughs> it's, it's funny because like I, we were watching it at work and there's like five Scottish guys and me, Dougs, Kevin, Gordon, David Shankland we're all Scottish watching the game next to an English guy and anytime something's going wrong we're like ah, check the screen, check the screen <laughs> <laughs> and then when it goes against them and they get something for them we're like ah, I hate that so <laughs> I think I think it probably just depends on the game if you like it or no and like to be honest like I think if you live in North America, you're looking at it going, right, well, they get to the end decision properly. But I think what happens is at the end of it is players start relying on it, going, check the screen just to check. And I think I think there has to be some sort of modification to the rules where the coach can decide, can we check that? Maybe one per half. It might be for a corner kick or something. Yeah, I definitely think that there's sort of modifications to the way that it's implemented that needs to be done. And I think the same is with players 
flashing for players to get booked and all that. Them doing the the sort of outline of the TV screen and all that to to try and get VAR um, is is something that's going to need to be stamped out. But I know personally for me, when I was watching it with friends and my family, this might sound a really superficial thing to say because a lot of people think technology will be ruining the game and all that, but... Uh, there was various points where I really felt like it did add a little bit to the tension of the game, especially given that probably 90 times out of 100, it was bringing you the end result that was the correct end result, so that's that's really what you're looking for. I don't know how, how much it would be able to be implemented in the more fast-paced league games and things like that of club football going throughout the season but certainly for something like the World Cup where the, the stakes are so high I, I think it definitely has a place I think it does I, it's pro- I think it's something when I was younger I was in favour of and then now I've seen it in the World Cup and I'm a wee bit like I'm not sure if I like this or no but I think it's probably one of those things where I'm unsure if I like it because they were using it so often I think if you come back to going right once a half each team then you don't have so many delays or breaks or so many players just relying on it to get away with things. What I do like about it, though, is like at free kicks and corners, there's only one way where you can, the referee can manage to pull somebody up. And as if the fourth official says in his ear, the balls come in, somebody's been dragged down in the box. If they can watch it on their watch, for example, rather than run into the side of the park, then I think that would be a better use of technology. So maybe Apple are going to have to come up with like a TV screen for your wrist for football managers or for referees or something to try and come up with a better way of doing it or putting it on the big screen and see what the referee sees. Because I think I think you're right. I think it adds a little bit of tension or drama to the situation, which for one team can be can be completely deflating or it can be completely given a, a bigger momentum to the other team and vice versa if it flips and goes the wrong way you're like yes we've got a chance oh no it's not a penalty the referee got it right and you're like damn so there's a little bit of that which I, which I strangely like as well yeah I think um, I think where the big hole for me as far as VAR is concerned I really like it I thought it, I thought it gave you like I said 99 times out of 100 the, the correct um, decision but I think I think where there's a bit of confusion is how much it affects the referee's authority over the game and I think that's why they've they implemented this rule where on some occasions the the remote um, reviewers were asking the, the referee to come off the pitch and look at a screen himself. Now whether you take that step away from the referee and you get the remote reviewers to completely make the decision or whether that affects the referee's um, authority too much, I don't know, but it might just make it flow a bit, a bit better. But again, these are all discussions that I suppose that could be had. It is the first time it's been used and it was used on a big stage and I don't think it was a complete disaster, so... Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I think it's something that, if they're going to use it, it has to evolve and has to be quicker and has to not undermine the referee because you're, you're always going to have players who are looking for a way around the, around the rules or around the referee to try and influence it. So I think if the referee can is able to do it faster with a little bit more authority, then that will help it long term. Yeah, I think we could all name five or ten or more players that probably would use it to their advantage if they could. And talking of individual players... um. Looking back on the tournament, and, and obviously Luka Modric playing for Croatia, he managed to get the golden ball, I think, and um, was really one of the most outstanding individual players of the tournament. Was there anybody else on an individual basis that you felt really kind of either stole the tournament or, or played better than you expected? Anybody that springs to mind as far as that's concerned? 
I, I think in the group stage, Luka Modric was was probably the best player in the group stage. Um, and as the tournament progressed, you could see he was the one dragging Croatia towards any sort of success. And he was incredible. I thought Antti Rebic came... I, I, I knew a little bit about him when he was at Frankfurt, but when I saw him playing for Croatia in the, in the tournament, I thought this is a, a top-level player. There wasn't too many players, I would say, completely stood out. I think it was a, it was a tournament very much of collectives. Teams where players did really well. Artem Zuba... Um, of Russia, I've been a fan of for years because I'm five foot five, and this, I, I, for whatever reason, I like big, physical, strong centre forwards who can ragdoll people, and he does that. And I think he was he was largely the reason I think Spain managed to get knocked out by Russia because he, he dragged Russia back into the game and kept giving them an outball. In the group stage, he was great as well. So, in terms of like players who stood out, Kieran Trippier, I think. I think he had an excellent tournament. I think he was really good. Um, he's been a good player for a while, but he's always been underrated. And I think when he went from Burnley to Tottenham, it's because of his crossing ability, which we saw in the tournament. His crossing was fantastic. And then obviously um, the free kick, I think he scored early on against Croatia and eventually got knocked out. So I think he had an excellent tournament. Um, yeah, for, for me, it's really difficult to pick people who stood out because... It was very much, in my opinion, a, a tournament of collective units rather than outstanding individual performances. I thought Coutinho did well in a kind of central midfield role. Um, Marcelo, I thought more was going to come from him. I thought more was going to come from Neymar. I actually thought um, Brazil were going to win it. I thought Gabi Jesus was extremely underwhelming. So in terms of like some players who you would look at and go, this guy's going to give you everything. And for me, Kylian Mbappe was was incredible. And when it come down to decisive moments, especially in the Argentina game on the counter-attack, he had two chances, one of them with the goalkeeper, and he's buried them both and put them through. And I think that was maybe one of the catalysts for, for France going to win it. And for me, if you look at the performances of a 19-year-old Mbappe, that guy could become as good as Messi or Ronaldo, maybe even better, because there's he'd, he's got something different about him. Electric pace, incredible in front of goal. And if you want to play in possession, he's fine. If you want to play in the counter-attack, he's, he's untouchable. So for me, Luka Modric was a standout. Kylian Mbappe was a standout. And then after, after that, there's no, in my opinion, no too many standout performances. I know Kevin De Bruyne was good. Eden Hazard was good, but... We already know that of those guys. So, yeah, it was, for me, it's a difficult one to pinpoint any more than two or three big players. Yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree with anybody you've highlighted there. Um, what I would add is uh, I think Russia being the host country had a lot a lot resting on them giving a good performance, which I think they did. I think as, as well as as the Russians that you highlighted, um, for me, Golovin and Cherishev, obviously... Um, for those of us who don't keep a close eye on Russian football or, or, or much to to do with it, I know Cherishev has played a bit more outside Russia than Golovin, but um, I think those two really open people's eyes to what's available in Russia um, football-wise and, and really yeah. lit up matches at times as well. I think Cherishev, when he started off at Real Madrid, he did fine, and I think he was the player that got him kicked out of the cup for not being um, registered as being eligible, and then when he's played for Villarreal, he's been good. So I think for him, it was maybe he was maybe one of the more technically gifted and more free in his position players that Russia had, which helped him a lot. I think in the group stage and then 
Golovin, obviously, he stood out because he was technically so good and stands out from his positional sense in the way he can link the game. So there's been a few Russian players have come through like that in recent recent years who have kind of not done anything after it. Alan Jagwev came through like that and did nothing else. So I thought Fernandez, the right back, was excellent. He could probably play in a big team in Europe, but it depends on if you if you ever wanted to leave. So it's one of those things where. You have a lot of players who break through at international level and you watch them and you think, will they do a great job at club level? And then after that, they, they kind of flatter to deceive. And there's some boys who are incredible at international level for whatever reason, but don't really do it at club level to the same sort of standard. Guys like Ebi Sand, uh, what was the name? Milan Barosh. Mil- the boy that played for Liverpool, Milan, uh, Milan Barosh. Bar- uh, Barosh, that's the name, yeah. When he played centre-forward, he was always amazing for, for the Czech Republic. Jan Koller was like that. He was amazing for the Czech Republic, but he yeah. didn't do much for Dortmund and a few other teams. So the, the World Cup's always interesting. that You get some guy that breaks through that nobody's really heard of, but never does anything at club level. So um, I, I, I always hope that they do well after it, but you never ever hear of of some of the guys who do well that they don't move on early enough or they don't take their chance when the when the opportunity is given to them. Yeah, I think I think a key um, example of that is somebody like uh, James Rodriguez. I mean, the twenty fourteen Cup was uh, World Cup was where he really burst onto the scene. And okay, he got his big money move to Real Madrid, uh, and he's now playing at Bayern Munich. So you could argue he's made it in that sense that he's playing for two big teams, but. Don't think anybody would argue that he's necessarily had a major impact on either of those teams the way he did in the, in that tournament, and and you just hope, like say, that there's 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 a chance for somebody to go on and and make this tournament the kind of springboard for the rest of their career. But I, I guess only time will tell. Aye, I think I, I think when when the tournament does go to forty eight teams, you'll see guys coming from smaller countries which nobody will have noticed before, or maybe they've highlighted a couple of guys in scouting who who do really well in the World Cup, and somebody takes a punt on them. So I think from smaller nations, the, you know, the World Cup's a really helpful thing to try and make a breakthrough. Maybe guys from like Iceland will be able to do it. Um, players from Sweden or Denmark who maybe have gone under the radar a little bit, even though they might play in the Champions League or Europa League, might get a move off the back of it. So when the World Cup does go to 48 teams, you might get players coming from from different Asian countries or, or South American countries, like maybe Venezuelan players making a bigger breakthrough in Europe. So I think when that does happen, that'll be, be an interesting thing to watch in the future. Yeah, I think I think that's probably the way everything's going with the game in general. We're becoming more global when you've got things like the internet and stuff available like that. Just players are going to become more familiar to, to fans all over the world that they maybe never would have heard of in years gone by. So um but no that's that's I don't think anybody would disagree with either of the, the groups of players that we've brought up there. Um as you said though, I think I think this was a World Cup more about teams, about collective efforts. So on that note, what teams stood out for you? Either ones that maybe performed above their level or ones that came in with expectations on their shoulders that, that did live up to the to the hype? Um, anybody that you specifically can, can think of? Obviously, Spain didn't really reach any levels of hype, if that's what you want to call it, or Portugal. They were both extremely disappointing in the group stage. Even even though France won it, you're looking at me. You're going, how much more could you give? You could have, you could have smashed everybody if you really wanted to. Germany were obviously extremely underwhelming. I think in terms of teams that were like overperformed, I, I don't even know if Croatia did overperform because Croatia are always one of these teams where you go, they could probably win it. They're a dark horse. 
in the same way that Czech Republic maybe were 15 years ago. So um, for them getting to the semi-final, I think, is something which you could expect. Getting to the final then becomes a lottery. I thought it was really good to see Japan reaching the second round because they were in a really difficult group. Like Poland kind of would be one of those teams where you would go, right, European half-decent should probably get through. They were absolute mints. Let's be honest. They were hopeless. Colombia, Colombia kind of shot themselves in the foot in the first game of getting a red card in the first game and giving Japan the three points. So it was it was nice to see Senegal. Senegal could have gone through if you know the rules were different, but it was nice to see them doing well. Morocco, I thought, were were fantastic despite not going through. I think if there was a way where you could go right, pick two teams who don't make it through and let them through to the next round because they had a really good style of play and they were really unlucky in the, in the way that the games fell I thought Morocco were fantastic um, yeah I, you obviously Iceland with the result they had against against Argentina would be a good one but yeah the big nations were all underwhelming even France even though they won it they were extremely underwhelming yeah I, I totally agree because actually when I was when I was coming up with this question in, in preparation for, for doing the pod tonight you know, I, I was going to frame the question as well. Obviously, France were the winners, so we can't talk about them being one of the better teams. But who else would you would you think? But actually, you really wouldn't have mentioned France in that breath because I think for all the sort of half decent performances that they had and all the plaudits that players like Griezmann and Pogba have been getting afterwards, I think they were one of the least dominant winners of the tournament that I can remember anyway. And and it was more a case of them just being the best of a kind of not great bunch you know there was a lot of the bigger teams went out even as far back as the last 16 in the quarters so France were probably in a situation where they were rubbing their hands a bit by the time it got to the semi-final so (laughs) yeah yeah so I I think it I think I think you're right in saying it's probably I I would agree about about Japan I I think they had some pretty outstanding players and and they, they really you know they they surprised a lot of people and um, had that that weapon of the old guard like Honda coming on from the bench to just shoot up matches, just so heartbreaking the way the way they went out to Belgium at the last minute like that. But but I guess that was just the difference in quality between those two teams. Yeah, I think when you're two 0 up against Belgium, you know they're going to throw everything at you to get back in the game. And I think there was probably that point where I think the last goal was off a corner. The boys went in a counter attack, and then and Belgium have scored. Maybe, maybe Japan if they go okay, we'll accept extra time. But at the same time, as a coach, you're going right. You can win it off a corner. Loads of goals off set pieces in this tournament. Just fire it in the box and see what happens. And then that's the thing. Like if you're a pragmatic coach, maybe you just play it short, keep it in the corner, accept extra time. Japan have gone on to try and win the game, and then ended up losing it from like one lightning quick, perfectly executed counter attack. So it's it's interesting. I read a few things about Japan before the tournament, and there was a few people saying that this was one of the least impressive Japanese squads in the last 15, 20 years. And you consider that you know 2002 World Cup that you co-hosted, they were all right in that. There've been a few World Cups where they've had a lot of really well-known, high-level players. This is one of the, the Japanese squads where there's a lot of guys that are unknown to a certain extent. I know a few play in Germany and a few other places like across Asia, and they've spread out themselves out a little bit. But when you look at previous squads, a prime level Kaisuke Honda, a top level. Shinsuke Nakamura, guys like Hidetoshi Nakata, you've got players who are household names in Europe, and they never—I don't think that they got that far either. So it's a—it's a big achievement for Japan to get out of the group that they got out of. 
and then to try and push Belgium as far as he did was obviously a, a massive achievement. I, th- I felt for him that it didn't go through, but it just shows you that people underestimate um, football from other areas. They go, European team, European team will win. Well, a team from Asia has managed to beat them. A team from Africa are always, always nightmares to play against because technically they're extremely underrated. And you hear a lot of commentators will say, oh, big, fast, powerful, strong. Sadio Mane might be big, fast, powerful and strong, but he's an extremely intelligent player. His positional sense, the timing of his press, the releasing of his passes, the technical ability he has, same with Mohamed Salah, one of the best players in the world. So it's not just all... African players, big, fast and powerful. Some of them are incredibly intelligent players like Seydou Keita was. So you're you're looking at the standard of football globally growing and South American countries like Venezuela who are improving. Mexico are always, always fantastic, but always improving. Asian countries are getting better. So I think you'll get to a point in the future where mid-level European countries won't be expected to beat these teams like, the, like what they currently are. Yeah, and I think to add on to that, they weren't there this year, but you know the USA and, and North America in general, their their domestic games going from strength to strength, and as everybody knows with the Americans, if they really take a sport to their heart, they they absolutely pump it full of money, and and very often or more often than not, sort of rise to the top of whatever sport they they choose to, and I, I could see that happening in years to come with the MLS and with the national team, so. Um, so that would be another team from another continent that would be able to, you know, sort of try and topple that European dominance of, of most of these international tournaments. But we'll see how it how it goes. Um, just going back to what we talked about before, we've talked about some of the outstanding players, some of the outstanding teams of the tournament. One of the underperformers that you touched on and, and one that really fell from grace dramatically having been the winners of the World Cup at the last tournament was Germany. So what do you think went wrong for them? Did you see many of their matches? Is there anything in particular that you thought uh, you could see happening that that led to their demise or anything that you think needs changed for them going forward? When you looked at the squad, it was... There was clear omissions. Like Leroy Sané is a left-footed, left-winger, blistering pace, had a great season. You go, right, OK, he's going to come in full of confidence. He could play off the left, not in the squad. Sami Khedira has been looking tired and weary for a while. He's, he's still a solid player, still a solid teammate to have in the squad. But is he a guy that you really, realistically want starting for Germany, given the depth of quality that they have? No, really. So I think that the squad selection was too loyal to previous players who'd managed to win the last World Cup. Some of the guys that had won the World Cup the last time who were starters, um, this time could have been squad players and maybe shouldn't have been playing. And I think by the time that that came, it was already too late. So I think with Germany, they were, if you look through expected goals, graphs and stuff like that, they were extremely unlucky that they should have coasted through every game and managed to win. But we always know in football that you know, luck is something that you need to have to try and get to the final and, or to try and be successful. Germany were on the wrong side of luck a little bit, but by the same token, Mexico cut them open and it was extremely clear from the start of the match what they were going to do. Germany never adapted, never changed, eventually lost. Um, the second game, I think, when they came back when Tony Kroos scored the free kick in the last minute, that gave them a chance. But in the end, realistically... As much as they played well, they weren't dominating like Germany should be. They were too open in the transition um, and they got cut open by, by quick teams. So 
they underwhelmed. They could have picked their squad a bit better. They could have tried to make the squad a bit more fresh. I think last year they had um, the Confederations Cup. They had maybe the under-21 tournament. They had three tournaments and they had basically three different teams and they showed the depth of quality that they've got. So the depth of quality wasn't really tested because there was a lot of the same faces still in the squad for the previous years. And I think now now at the stage of, of analysis that we have and technology that we have, you can watch all of Germany's previous games and you know in advance the movements of the players based on the profiles that they have, based on the players that are picked and what substitutions are possible. You can understand before you even play Germany how they're going to play, who's going to go where. So then the game becomes entirely predictable. And I think if there's one thing that you could maybe accuse Germany of of lacking from the last World Cup to the Euros to now was a lack of evolution in the system and how predictable they became and that made them unsuccessful in this in this tournament. Yeah, I think that was definitely one of their biggest strengths, certainly in 2014. You know, they had a very young side that had been sort of, um, if anybody's read um, Dash Reboot by Raphael Honigstein, he sort of details how um, the 5-1 defeat to England in 2001 sort of saw them absolutely throw out the rule book in German football and, and, and Jurgen Klinsmann had a, a big role in sort of re-establishing how things went forward so the the team that arrived at the 2014 World Cup and eventually went on to win were this kind of young nucleus of a team that had been working towards this for you know longer than some players have a professional career uh, and you know players like Gotze and uh, others who became household names in the aftermath of the tournament People forget that they weren't really well-known players going into the tournament. And like you say, there was a lack of familiarity around that time that other teams couldn't predict what they were going to do. But as soon as as soon as soon they'd done it, they'd then obviously given away their trade secrets and and therefore were a lot more predictable in, in the tournaments coming up. So, um, yeah, having said all that, what's the old saying? Never write the Germans off. They've managed to make the last four of every major tournament for something like the last... 30 or 40 years, bar a couple, so I'm sure it won't be very long before they're back. Um, Just moving on a little bit to the last kind of topic of the World Cup, despite the fact you and I are both obviously from north of the border, just see what your thoughts were on how Gareth Southgate and the boys managed while they were over there. It was was an interesting one because normally um, I don't relax in the World Cup until England are out. (laughs) I, I I, I can't be doing with the media. I don't have a problem with players or anything like that. I just can't be bothered with the media. So I can't relax until they're out. And I thought, and also one of my, one of my best mates here, a big boy called Jordan, he was, he's watching every game, not in the office with us because he can't watch it with five Scottish guys, which is completely understandable. And every time that they're winning, he's writing, it's coming home in the fridge. And I'm like, not having this big man. It's coming home, written on the wall. I'm like, ah, honest to God. See, if I, if, I, if I could reach you at six foot four, I would. I'd come and drag you down. But it was one of the things where I watched them and I think, I like the way they've set up. I like who Gareth Southgate's got them playing. I think they changed a little bit from playing 3-4-2-1 to 5-3-2 or 3-5-2, which kind of went against them, I, I would suggest. I think with the extra man in midfield, they were able to, to possess the ball and attack a little bit better. Whereas um, in the game against Croatia, there was a few things where clearly they needed to change to, to either 4-4-2 or a 4-5-1 or something to deal with the switch of play better. And I think there became a tactical limitation as to how they could play against certain teams because Croatia with Modric and Rakitic able to just get it and switch it 60 yards effortlessly 
that caused them the problem with the goal that they conceded was a cycle crossed into Mandzukic. So you had things where they were doing really well and they gave themselves tactical flexibility. But I think there became a level of we'll stick with what we've got during the tournament and no changing a little bit to try and counter specific threats or to try and get themselves more on the ball. So they showed signs of promise. Um, it's a little bit of a worry that they could do really well in Qatar. Um <laughs> They, they could they could do really well in the next Euros and I think it's testament to the youth coaches in, in English football and the youth academies that they have so many players coming through of such high technical quality they now have players coming through with technical quality being coached at the top level by coaches of incredible tactical quality they're being looked after in the best facilities with the best sports science and medicine and everything else so there, there comes a point now where you go, the youth coaches in England are doing such an amazing job at producing and identifying incredibly talented technical kids and developing them, making them better team players. But when they get an opportunity at the top level, if they're being coached by a Klopp or a Pochettino or a Guardiola or a Sarri or a, a Mourinho, these guys are being coached by some of the best in the world. Now, if you flip that and go, right, who's that manager of England? Gareth Southgate is a, is a humble guy who's probably gone around all these clubs and went right how do I get the best out of these players and how do I kind of create a system which meshes all these influences together to make something which suits the players so that they don't have to relearn the system if you can then imagine Sam Allardyce taking that team of all the players coached by all those amazing coaches and then Sam Allardyce taking them in a completely different style and collective environment I think that they then lose a lot of what they did so I think, I think it's there's a lot of credit to be given to the guys working at youth level in England to get them to the point that they're at now where technically you could argue they're ahead of a lot of the supposedly better technical European players. It's just that jump of how many of them can now be given first team minutes because I thought Gareth Southgate was, was fantastic during the tournament. I thought he conducted himself really well. Um, I thought the players... A lot of young guys did really well. Sometimes some of them sacrificed themselves for the team. Guys like Dele Alli did a different job. But when it came down to really, really needing to adapt their system to try and get a hold of different games like the Croatia game or the Colombia game, they failed in that sense. So that's something that they'll need to improve upon. But they are they're definitely a threat for the next couple of tournaments. Yeah, I totally agree with that. To be honest, I think like yourself, more so than. Than the teams or the managers of England teams past, it's it's really been the media approach to things uh, that has really kind of clouded my own sense of judgment on how well they have or haven't done. Now, having said that, I thought the media were just as bad this year uh, as they ever are. You know, you're, you're sitting in a situation where the English pundits, thankfully Roy Keane was providing a little bit of uh, sanity to the whole conversation never thought I'd say that but there you go um, Aye. he was sort of saying you, you're embarrassing yourselves because they, at half time I think at the at the semi-final when they looked like they were kind of playing well and, and things might go their way they were they were talking the Croatia team down like nothing I've ever seen before and, and they were rubbishing them and talking about how Harry Kane was as good as Messi or whatever, and but then at, at the end when they get put out, they totally flip it and they say, "Oh, you've got to remember these players are are coming from top European clubs. You've got Mandzukic at Juventus, you've got Modric at Madrid, and and I'm sitting thinking, well, everybody else watching it knew that. It just seems like the people in the studio were getting a little bit carried away. But having said that, I thought one of Gareth Southgate's 
big achievements from the tournament was that okay he implemented some things like uh, I think he got some of the players to play darts with the journalists and things like that but that was almost as a way to kind of break down that barrier and to indulge them less than than other managers have I think if if Sam Allardyce hadn't had his unfortunate um, incident that led to him only taking charge I think of one match I think he would have indulged the more hyperbolic praiseworthy side of the press that they kind of like to ladle on the team until they go out and then absolutely lambast them whereas Southgate kind of removed all the players from that a little bit and just focused on the tactical work focused on how they were going to play the game and focused going uh, one game at a time I remember when the uh, when the groups finished and they were kind of plotting their way all the way to the final of who they could play and who they couldn't play and, and they were on the, the weaker side of the draw you could argue he was the one that kept the, up the old mantra of you've got to go one game at a time and uh, Lord knows he's been there often enough before to, to know that you know it's not a done deal until you're until the whistle's blown and the game's over, but yeah, I think I think like you, uh, I'm particularly worried about um, Qatar in twenty twenty two because I had a I had a horrible feeling I was down in London at the weekend of the World Cup final. I had a horrible feeling I was going to be in London uh, the year that England made the World Cup final, but <laughs> thankfully that didn't come to pass. So we'll see what happens in twenty twenty two. So that's us covered the World Cup. Unfortunately, it'll be another four years till another one, but um, who knows if it's as, half as good as this one's been this year, then I think we've got plenty to look forward to. Moving on a little bit, just to close out the podcast, what Stevie and myself are going to do is just discuss over some of the big transfers that have happened in the summer. Um, so... Stevie, any that have um, particularly jumped out to you or any that you want to discuss... I think um, the Malcolm to Barcelona move is an interesting one, given that last year they signed Usman Dembele and then they signed Coutinho. So now you say, well, is Coutinho going to play inside and does does Messi play as a striker or does Messi play in the right? And then how does that impact Malcolm and Usman Dembele's minutes? Because they're, for me, two of the most exciting young talents in the world. And I think, how does Barcelona then manage the Messi-Suarez situation of who plays more often or who plays where when they do play together so it's it's interesting that Barcelona are maybe looking at that and trying to prepare for the future or do they say right we'll keep one more year of Luis Suarez and then next year how do we fix the problem or do we play Messi as a striker so Barcelona's transfer activity I think they just signed Arturo Vidal maybe just to give a little bit more experience to replace Iniesta so mm-hmm. their, their transfer activity has been a little bit all over the place but at the same time a little bit understandable. I, I didn't see the point of them trying to go for Willie, and if that was true, especially at 29 and 65 million. So I think the, the Malcolm transfer is an interesting one. I think if we if we look at, obviously, Cristiano Ronaldo going to Juventus, is that is that a move for them where they go, we keep him here for five years, and the intention in the next five years is to win the Champions League at least once? Because you're not signing Cristiano Ronaldo for any other reason. They've won the league what seven years in a row? Mm-hmm. They're not buying Cristiano Ronaldo to win the league. They're increasing them. They're increasing their brand value by signing Cristiano Ronaldo, and then competitively, do they win the Champions League buying him? Because I think he might be the difference between them being a, a good quarter finalist, semi finalist, and occasional finalist to being a team where you go, 
they might win it. They might become one of the favourites now. So that's that's been kind of two of the most interesting ones. Obviously, Ronaldo's an obvious one. So, but the Malcolm to Barcelona one for me is good. As a as a guy who grew up always liking AC Milan, it's been it's been sad to see Leonardo Bonucci go back to Juventus. But mm-hmm. Milan have needed a, a proper striker for since Robinho and Ibrahimovic left. And so now that Gonzalo Higuain's joined, I think now the team has a striker and they have a focal point where now they can be a little bit feared among the league. So those are those are some interesting ones. I think Jorginho to Chelsea is really interesting because I, I thought he would go to Man City. Maybe maybe some other people thought the same, but there's a possibility that Maurizio Sarri knew all along he was joining Chelsea mm-hmm. and Jorginho's just held off until it's been confirmed. So that, that I think, is a fantastic signing because now you have Jorginho and Angolo Kante playing together in midfield that you've got probably the perfect balance in midfield and I think with Hazard in front and possibly I, I'm, I've never been a fan of Alvaro Morata so I wouldn't be surprised if Chelsea were to go and buy another striker and try and find a way to make Hazard more free, kind of what Insigne had. So, Sarri, Maurizio Sarri is a really interesting coach, and Chelsea are a much, much more interesting team to watch because he's the coach rather than Antonio Conte's style, which I thought was really scripted and pragmatic and a lot of the times boring. So, Sarri to Chelsea for me is probably the biggest signing of anywhere this season. Um, I mean... Naby Keita is an amazing signing for Liverpool. I don't know if he counts because that was done last year. Um, Fabinho to Liverpool is is obviously a, a fantastic signing because he's been touted around for a long time to different clubs and I think Liverpool might be the perfect place for him and he gives Liverpool a lot of squad depth and balance that they needed, um, particularly at the top, top level because I'm not sure Jordan Henderson is that high level. Yeah, just to jump in on that, actually talking about the Liverpool signings, that... Shakiri from from Stoke to them for me was a, a really really weird one because okay I've seen him at Bayern Munich I, I watched him at Basel um he's got a lot of natural talent obviously we've just seen him score that overhead kick against Manchester United in the in the friendly over in the states but I I, I don't know that at twenty five or twenty six whatever age he is that he's shown enough to merit getting into a team that has the likes of Keita coming into it um, with so many other attacking midfielders in that squad. I don't know that what Shakiri will add. Maybe I'm missing something, haven't seen him. Or, or, or maybe you can offer a different opinion on that. But it was one that puzzled me, unless they were just thinking, in this day and age, £13 is really nothing. He's worth a punt kind of thing. Th- £13 million for a guy who is vastly experienced across European football, is still only 25-26. He's basically the leader of the national team in an attacking sense. So this is a responsible player. And I know a few people have slaughtered him online recently about how he played for Stoke, but that Stoke team is one of the worst Premier League teams I've ever seen. With a lot of guys who are nowhere near Premier League level, smashing passes 60 yards in front of them, going chase it. No. Now why would I chase that ball? Stop wasting my energy. So to me, I think Sheridan Shakiri is one of these players where if you put players of similar quality and better quality around him, he shines because he is such a such a talented talented footballer. Scores from anywhere. Left foot, his right foot is not the best. Let's be honest. But if he's playing on the right hand side and Mo Salah gets injured, you don't have a direct replacement. Shakiri is not a direct replacement for Mo Salah because he's not obviously the same quality. But he can play on that side. He's direct. He's quick. He's a goal scorer. He'll make assists. 
I think he's a really good squad player to have if he's not going to be a starting 11 player to play off the right you can play him as a 10 I think he's just a fantastic signing 13 million makes it even better yeah well you firmly put me in my place there I'll tell you that but well, the, thing, uh, the thing is like, you're, you'll, you'll not be the only one lots of people will go oh Shaqiri was rubbish for Stoke well actually he made a mountain of goals and a mountain of assists in a rubbish team and he's a guy since, since 17 years old has always been uh, a responsible key player in just about every team and when he went to Bayern Munich couldn't get a game because Arjen Robben was in front of him still improved went to Inner Milan and did alright and then when he joined Stoke I think it's because Stoke had probably chucked a load of money and said if you do well we'll sell you to somebody like a Man United or Liverpool so I think he's a really good player he'll, I think he'll prove a lot of people wrong yeah so we'll, we'll, only time will tell I suppose there was a lot of people who had a lot to say about Mo Salah and he certainly proved a lot of them wrong they obviously were a bit ignorant of, of the type of player he'd become playing for Fiorentina and Roma and uh in Italy and, and had kind of just neglected to to keep up with the progress of his career after he left Chelsea so you never know Shakiri could do something similar and I, I guess for himself anyway you better pray that uh, Liverpool don't go ahead with that deal to try and get Christian Pulisic from Dortmund because I think he would he would get straight into any team that he managed to get a transfer to, but uh, like I say, we'll see, we'll see what happens. Um, just to go on to another one of the Liverpool signings, been one of the, the transfers of the summer, one of the talking points of the summer was um, the world record breaking fee for a goalkeeper for Alisson from Roma to, to Liverpool. Now, I think everybody who's listening to this um, will be aware, but for anybody who's not, it really came off the back of um, Loris Karius's uh, nightmarish performances where he, he, he made two massive errors that led directly to goals in the uh, Champions League final last season against Real Madrid. Um, it's looking like his days at Anfield are numbered, but uh, just want your thoughts on that, Stevie. How, where do you see Karius's career going? Can he recover from something like this? If he does, will it be at Liverpool or elsewhere? And how do you see Alisson settling in after what I have to say was... It was quite a decent World Cup, I thought. Ah, yeah, well, I think that Liverpool probably been looking for a goalie for a while. Um, and maybe were a little bit reluctant to spend big on it. And then Karius and Mignolet, they're, they're OK. The Howlers in the Champions League final, I think, will live with Karius for the rest of his life and he'll never get away with it. My, my bigger concern for him would be how does he cope with that mentally for the rest of his life? Because that's something that you'll never, ever be able to get away from. It's not like in the old days before TV and internet and stuff where howlers were made, but nobody remembers or sees them. This will be something that's in front of him for the rest of his life. So I think psychologically he's got a big issue. If he if he is to stay at Liverpool, I think he'll be content to be the second or third choice goalie for a while just to try and get through a specific period of his life before he moves on. I think it's really it's, it's a really hard situation for him as a person probably to go right I'm not going to get a game for Liverpool but wherever I go I'm under the microscope if I even make even a slight bit of an error it's going to be magnified 10 times so I think for him it's maybe it might not be a bad thing to be a sub goalie for a year and then move on under the radar a little bit Alison Becker I think from the little bits I've seen of him at Roma last year and for for um, for Brazil he looks a solid enough goalkeeper um, good kicking, good range of good range of motion coming out from the back is and how he sweeps up and how he reads the game and things like that. So there's a lot of things that I think Liverpool needs that he, he brings. My only my only concern would be 
how good is he at dealing with crosses? Because that is that is the thing that all goalkeepers are required to be good at in the English Premier League, if I remember. Um, when David De Gea joined Man United when he was like 19 or 20, that was the thing he struggled with the most. And there was fingers pointed at him being a shaky goalie when clearly he was going to become world class. He had to improve. So if Alison Becker is better at dealing with crosses and better at dealing with balls that are just bobbling around the box and reaction saves better than Carrius and better than Mignolet, then then I think he'll be a success because he's he's already proven himself to be one of the best goalkeepers in the world. He's now the most expensive goalkeeper ever. So it's going to be difficult for somebody to live up to a £67 million price tag as a goalkeeper, but if he manages to get them to win the league and doesn't make the two howlers in the Champions League final, he become it's one of those things where it's a lot of money for a goalie, but at the same time, if he if he saves Liverpool 12 to 15 points a season, then he might be the the difference between winning the league. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I think Liverpool are probably uh, of of all the Premier League teams are the ones that have probably strengthened the most um, across the board and and really identified areas of weakness that they that they can build on and and uh, I think will probably come as close as anybody else to challenging Pep to, to take that title back. Um, like you said before, I think where Chelsea are concerned, I think Sarri will just completely change the way that they play as a club. You know, everybody always said that Abramovich was trying to get Pep for so long because he wanted this change in the brand of their football. He was fed up with the Mourinho park in the bus kind of thing and and he never really got that with Conte. He never got the attacking football he wanted, but um, I think I think Sarri will bring that as well. Um, but yeah, I think that's I think that that kind of sums things up as far as the the transfers are concerned. Um, uh, over the next few weeks, what I hope think we'll try and do on the podcast is try and sort of build up to the season. Obviously, the the English season's starting pretty soon, but the European ones are are a little bit later on. Um, towards the end of August, start of September, so we've got a bit of time to look at those. Um, but uh, to everybody that's listening, um, hopefully this will become a regular thing, and you can listen to us every week. But uh, we will keep you posted on that if you follow the. World Football Index uh, Twitter um, or you can follow myself Laura Bradburn at, at lbrad88 Stevie where can they find you? Just on Twitter just at Stevie Greve That's great thanks very much for coming on today it was a pleasure to have you hopefully work again with you soon Cheers uh, nice talking to you Thanks for everybody for listening and hopefully see you next week Music